0: Let's pray together. O God, most high and glorious, who planned to bring salvation through Christ to unworthy sinners like us, we marvel that Christ Jesus so closely identifies with and loves his church, that the church is called the body of Christ, that through him you have united and equipped people from diverse backgrounds from all over the world to carry out your purpose. We marvel that you use the imperfect church as a means and instrument to accomplish your good purposes. We know that you are almighty and you do not need our help, but we praise you for displaying your power through feeble people. Our finite minds sometimes struggle to comprehend your infinite greatness. It is true that you, your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. And so, Lord, we we certainly need your help to know you. And we praise you for graciously revealing yourself to us in your word and sending your Holy Spirit to empower us to understand with greater clarity your steadfast love. You have told us through your word that blessed are those who seek you with their whole heart. Help us to do this today. Help every one of us to continually seek to know you better. And as we do this, Lord, please renew our minds with your word. We want our minds to be filled with more of your word and less of the world. That our minds would more closely reflect yours. That we might not sin against you. Father, we want our lives to reflect our identity in Christ. We want our lips to be a beacon of grace. We want to use our words to encourage and to build others up. We want to use our voices to worship and praise your name. We want to use our words to bless And speak truth. We confess that this week some of us have used our lips to lie and to gossip and to slander. Some of us have used your name in vain. Some of us used words to communicate wrath and bitterness. Some of us used our words for filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. We acknowledge that these sins do not reflect the new life that we have in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins. Help us to put these sins far from us. Transform us, Lord, by renewing our minds. We don't want to use our lips in the same way we did before we became Christians. We want our speech to be instruments of righteousness to your glory. Father, how much more would our church be marked by love if every Christian here used our speech only in ways that brought glory to you? How much more would our church be united if... Every Christian worked hard by your grace to put bitter jealousy and selfish ambition far from us. Make this so, we pray. And Lord, as we prepare to hear your word preached, help us to focus and listen. Father, reprove us in the areas we need to be reproved. Rebuke us in the areas we need to be rebuked. And encourage us in the areas we need to be encouraged. And do all of this for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Turn, if you win, your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 is where we will begin today. We left off last week with the Lord making a covenant with Israel and the covenant was if Israel obeyed the Lord's commands then the Lord will give them the promised land and that land will be a blessing to them providing for their needs without the fear of famine and that the people of Israel will not face sickness in the land that's what the covenant said And this covenant was confirmed with sacrifice. Moses constructed an altar with pillars around it that illustrated the tribes of Israel. And they brought animals and they sacrificed them. And Moses threw some of the blood onto the people. Because that is the way that a covenant is confirmed. It's a way of saying before the Lord that if you do not keep your end of the covenant arrangement, that you will die. And so there's this peace offering that is made before the Lord, this offering of atonement. And in celebration of this offering, Moses and 70 of the elders of the people of Israel go up onto the mountain. And they have a feast before the Lord. And we're told that they beheld God at least in part And that the Lord's hand was not set against them. They were able to be in the presence of God without the Lord justly destroying them due to their sin. Because of the Lord's loving kindness toward his people. Because of the sacrifice. And we discussed last week how all of the aspects of this covenant affirmation point us to Jesus Christ. Who is the one who actually obeys the commands of the Lord? Where the Israelites and the rest of humanity did not. Where Jesus is the one whose sacrifice covers our sin once for all. Where the sacrifices in the the Mosaic Covenant were repeated every single year, sometimes more than that. And where Jesus is the one who welcomes us fully into the presence of God without fear. It's not restricted to just the higher-ups or the elders. It's for all of us. In Christ, all of us can come to the Lord without fear. This is the proper way for us as Christians to read and understand the Old Testament. To focus on Jesus as the primary central point. As some commentators have said, we should read the Old Testament With gospel glasses. That we should see how these things point us to Jesus. The Bible refers to this as the concept of shadow versus substance. Our passage today will cover the Lord's instruction in the construction and assembly of the tabernacle. Also known as the tent of meeting. I'm a brave man. I'm preaching a sermon about furniture and curtains after we just had a big breakfast together. So everybody try hard to stay awake. But similarly to last week, my hope for this passage is for us to recognize how these things ultimately point us to Jesus. Recognizing that these things are a shadow of the substance that comes in the new covenant in Christ's blood. So with all of that said, let's look together at Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through chapter 25, verse 8, where we'll first see the law and the glory. If you got one of our bulletins on your way in this morning or picked up a sermon listening guide from the back table, you'll see that we have three points today, and that is our first one, the law and the glory. So let's read together Exodus 24, beginning in verse 12 it says this the lord said to moses come up to me on the mountain and wait there that i may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which i have written for their instruction so moses rose with his assistant joshua and moses went up into the mountain of god and he said to the elders wait here for us until we return to you and behold aaron and her are with you whoever has a dispute let him go to them Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights." And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So on the heels of Moses and Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders of Israel celebrating the feast After the peace offering in the presence of the Lord, the Lord calls to Moses to come up onto the mountain. He says, Moses, you come up here. And he tells Moses that his purpose in calling him is to give him the tablets of stone. These are the Ten Commandments. The Lord takes the Ten Commandments and puts them onto two stone tablets... And they are historically recognized by scholars to be divided into what we call the two tables of the law. The first four commandments having to do with how we interact with and relate to the Lord. The the, the last six of the Ten Commandments being how we interact and relate to one another. And so the Lord takes the Ten Commandments and places them on these tablets of stone. And that is what he tells Moses he's going to do this is yet another scriptural indication of the importance and permanence of those ten particular commands from the Lord. If you remember from last week, the rest of the book of the covenant, the rest of the law, was merely written down by Moses. He took the things that the Lord said to him and he wrote them down for Israel's benefit. But, the Ten Commandments are different. The Lord writes the Ten Commandments Himself on these tablets of stone. The Bible uses the phrase that the Lord, that they are written with the finger of God. The Lord gives these commandments in a permanent form to Moses for Israel. This held in conjunction with the fact that the Ten Commandments were spoken directly to the people of Israel by God there at Mount Sinai, further helps us to recognize that the moral law is different in nature than the rest of the Mosaic law. Over and over and over again, when we actually examine the way that these things are presented to us in the text, we see the Lord showing us. He doesn't necessarily outright say it, but he's showing us these Ten Commands are different from the rest of the law. These 10 commands have a permanence to them. These 10 commands are for all people for all time. That's why he spoke them to Israel directly. That's why he writes them on these tablets of stone. In fact, the Lord commands Moses to put the tablets into the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll discuss more in a few moments, but not the whole Mosaic law. Only the tablets with the Ten Commandments go into the Ark of the Covenant. The Book of the Law does not. I know that at this point I probably sound like a broken record because I keep harping on this. But this is really important for us to properly understand because we have talked about We went through the whole book of Galatians talking about how we are no longer bound by the law. The law does not justify us and we no longer have to submit ourselves to the civil law and to the ceremonial law because those things are fulfilled and completed in Christ. But the moral law is different and it's important for us to understand that. The moral law is forever binding upon all of humanity because they are reflections of the morality and nature of God where there are aspects of the law, the Mosaic law as a whole, that don't necessarily reflect the morality of God. The most famous example being the laws about divorce. We're told in Scripture that God hates divorce, but that God allowed divorce because of the hardness of men's heart. That is not a reflection of the perfect moral nature, the perfect righteousness of God. It's a reflection of God placing boundaries around sinful men. But the moral law is different. Our confession of faith puts it this way. In chapter 19, paragraph 5, it says, The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator, who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. When we speak about the law that man, mankind is held accountable to, it's the moral law. And while the judicial and ceremonial laws are completed and fulfilled in Christ, the moral law remains. And while obedience to the moral law does not save us, it is commanded of us. Just for example, First Peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 says this, as obedient children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The moral law is a reflection of the holiness of God. And because all of humanity, especially those of us who are believers, are called to be holy, this is where we find the key to holiness. And so as Moses goes up onto the mountain, the thick cloud that was previously mentioned in chapter 19 now covers the entirety of the mountain. And the people of Israel, people of Israel altogether are covered by the promises of God. All of them are included in the Mosaic covenant. But only those whom the Lord calls to himself are able to draw near. I want you to to understand this, that within the Mosaic Covenant, there are multiple layers of how close people are to the Lord. The whole nation of Israel, the physical descendants, are given the promise of the land and the benefits that are attached to it. But not everybody can just go into the presence of God. That's reserved for a select few. And we see this illustrated here By the differing ways that Moses and the people see the appearance of the glory of God. The text tells us that after six days, the Lord calls to Moses on the seventh day out of the midst of the cloud, indicating for us that this is the way that Moses perceives the glory of God that has descended on the mountain. He sees it as a thick cloud. But the people see something different. They see what the text describes as something appearing like a devouring fire. So that's what they see down at the bottom of the mountain. Moses sees a cloud. They see a symbol of destruction and terror. There is something to be said here about the way that we view the Lord as well. For those of us who are in Christ... We see the Lord as he is, holy and righteous and full of loving kindness toward his people. When we who are believers think of being in the presence of God, that is not something that fills us with fear, but something that fills us with joy and fills us with hope and fills us with comfort. But for those who are not in Christ, their view of God is different. They view God as cruel or frightening or even false. And for them, if they were to behold the glory of God, it would be a terrifying thing because it would mean that they are facing judgment and wrath in a way that Christians do not. And so we see a reflection of the truth here in how Moses sees the glory of the Lord versus how the people see the glory of the Lord. But the Lord in his graciousness is going to make a way for the people of Israel to be near to him. Despite the fact that they cannot come near, they cannot come up the mountain, the Lord wants them to make a sanctuary so that he can dwell among them, so that he can be in the midst of his people. Now, obviously, God is already in their midst because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time, all at once. But his glory... Will be known among his people for future generations who were not at the mountain. You see, those who are at the mountain, they can see, they can behold the glory of God, but their children may not. Their grandchildren certainly won't. And so, this is the way that they will behold the glory of God through this tabernacle and later the temple that they are going to set up, this sanctuary. But in order for the building of the sanctuary to happen, Moses is going to take up a collection. And notice that this is not a compulsory taking. The Lord doesn't say, everybody who has gold has to give it. Everybody who has fine linen has to give it. This is more like a love offering. The Lord says, everyone whose heart is so moved, they'll give. And they're to give these things, and he lists them off. Gold and silver and bronze and fine fabrics and onyx stones and all of these things because they are going to be used to build this sanctuary that the Lord intends. Verses 3 through 7 gives us a list of those materials. And what I think we should recognize is that what the Lord is asking for is valuable stuff. He's asking for stuff that is worth something, the best of what they have. And the Lord is worthy of that. The Lord is worthy of our best. Far too often, we give the Lord what is left. We offer what time is left. We offer what money is left. We offer what resources remain once we are done using them for our own ways, our own things, our own pleasures. But the Lord says, if you're going to build a sanctuary for me The best must come to me. And and the truth of the matter is, it all belongs to him. Remember how the Israelites got these things? They got these things because as they were leaving Egypt, the Lord gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, whom he had been terrorizing and oppressing through plagues. He gave them favor. And they literally went into their Egyptian neighbor's homes and said, Hey, that's that's some really nice gold. Can I have it? And the Egyptians were like, Sure, please take it. That's, a really nice, that's some really nice linen. Can I have it? Sure, absolutely. It's yours. And so all of these things are not things that they had gotten on their own. They had not worked hard to get them. They were slaves. They had nothing. But because of the actions of the Lord, they had these things, and now the Lord is saying, give them back. Give them back. Far too often, we are tempted to hold tightly to things that are not ours, but ultimately do belong to the Lord. And so now that this collection has been established, we move into the description of the tabernacle and the things that are contained in it. And so our next point this morning that we're going to see in verses 9 through 40 of chapter 25 is the presence and the promise. The presence and the promise. I'm going to read just verse 9. I'm not going to read through all of this, but I'm going to read just verse 9 because I want to highlight something here. So the Lord has just said, let, me make, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So Moses on the mountain is not only given verbal instruction from the Lord, but he also apparently is shown something. Whether that's a a kind of a blueprint, an image, or it's some sort of actual heavenly tabernacle, it's not entirely clear. I lean toward an actual heavenly tabernacle but I, I don't, we don't have to be dogmatic about that. But he sees it. And we see that, that kind of phrase repeated multiple times over the next three chapters. In verse 9 and verse 40 of chapter 25, we see something similar. In verse 40, it says, And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So what we should understand here is that this earthly tabernacle is intended to reflect some sort of heavenly reality, some sort of godly thing, some otherworldly thing Moses sees, and what he is to build, what the people are to build, is a reflection of that. And I want to highlight that for us because... When we think about something like the regulative principle of worship, which tells us that we are to worship the Lord using the things that we see lined out for us in Scripture and not invent our own ways. When we think about that, we draw the principles of this from passages like what we're studying this morning. Because what we see here in this sermon and in the next sermon is the Lord giving very detailed instructions For how he is to be worshipped by his people. Down to the measurements for the table that is to be placed within the tabernacle. The kind of wood that is to be used. The kind of precious metal that is to be used. He has a very specific plan and purpose in mind for these things. Again, because they are reflections, earthly shadows of a heavenly reality. And so if the people of Israel were to say, oh, well, you know, that table's a little bit small. Let's make a bigger table. That would be more glorious, right? It'd be more glorious to do a bigger table with better, shinier metals. I know the Lord said pure gold, but what if instead we found some platinum? That'll really make it sparkle, make it pop. And in our earthly minds, we might hear that and go, well, yeah, of course, the Lord deserves the absolute best. And so if we can improve upon this, we 100% should do that, right? Well, here's the problem with that. Because these things are reflections of a heavenly reality, what we are essentially saying in those sorts of, in those sorts of mentalities is that our understanding is higher than God's. We can improve upon what is already perfect because it's already in the presence of the Lord. The same is true of our New Testament worship. While the Lord does not give us specifications for the size of the building or for the the materials that it's to be made of or the size of any of the things that we use, he does show us in Scripture, in the New Testament, what the worship of the church is to look like. And when we take it upon ourselves to try to improve upon it by adding things to it, or taking things away from it to make it better or more relevant or more meaningful, what we instead do is we take something that has a heavenly reality and we make it more worldly. And so that's why the Lord gives these detailed instructions. And so this section of our text deals with three particular items that are to be placed within the tabernacle. The ark, the table, and the lampstand. And for each of these items, specifications are given for how they are to be built. Each of them have components that are either overlaid with gold or are made of pure gold. This represents both the immense worthiness of the Lord as well as his purity. But each item also represents a particular aspect of God's presence and his purposes. So the first thing we find is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. The word ark there essentially just means box, and that's what the ark of the covenant is. It's essentially just a box. It's about four feet long, just shy of four feet long. And the ark is going to be the long-term home of the tablets of the law, along with, later on down the road, Aaron's staff that budded and a container of manna, all of them representing promises and covenant with the Lord. And on top of the ark is the mercy seat, which is the cover. And so there's this box that's made out of wood and overlaid with gold. And then there's the top, the lid, the mercy seat. And on each end of the mercy seat, there is to be a cherubim, which is another type, it's a type of angel. And they are to face one another with their wings opened up above them. And the mercy seat, unlike the rest of the ark, is not wood overlaid with gold, but it is pure gold only. And it's all supposed to be one piece with the two cherubim also a part of the same pure gold that is hammered out and made this way. Now look, I, you guys know I'm not a handy person. I, don't, I, don't, I can't build things. I can't make things. The idea of doing that sounds incredibly daunting to me. There are men in our church who are handy. And as I'm describing that, I saw their eyebrows raise because they also recognize this is not an easy task. In fact, the Lord is going to supernaturally gift someone with the ability to make this particular thing. But this, this makes this ark extraordinarily heavy because it's a solid gold piece. Now, this ark is never to be touched by human hands. After it is completed, after it is placed into the Holy of Holies, it is never to be touched by human hands. Instead, there are poles that go through rings that are fastened to the box, and the poles are never to come out of the Ark of the Covenant. They are to always remain there. Because if at any point in time the Ark should need to be suddenly moved, if you you say, well, we're in a hurry, just grab one end, you're going to die. In fact, we see that happen. A man named Uzzah, as the ark is being carried back to Israel on a cart after Israel misused it, it's being brought back on a cart, the cart goes to tip over, and Uzzah says, oh no, I have to stop it from falling. And he touches it and steadies it, and Uzzah drops dead on the spot. And a preacher, a preacher once said, Uzzah's big mistake was thinking that he was somehow cleaner than the dirt that the ark would fall in. That is why we could not, no man or woman could touch the ark. Because it was pure. Because this was the place where the Lord would meet with the representatives of his people. He says he will meet with them from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. And in fact the fact that this is where the Lord will meet with his people and the design of the poles to carry it and the fact that the cover is called the mercy seat, all of that should evoke a different image in our minds. Because the Ark of the Covenant is the representation of the throne of God. And the Holy of Holies, where it resides, is a representation of his throne room. This is the true seat of power among the nation of Israel. This is where their one true king, the Lord God Almighty, holds court. Is here at the Ark of the Covenant. The next thing that we see is we see a table. The table for bread, it's called. And they have the specifications for the table along with all of the implements that belong on it. And the purpose of the table is to hold the bread of the presence which is also known as the showbread. That bread of the presence, or the showbread, is 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And these loaves were to be before the Lord perpetually. And so the priests would use the golden implements that the Lord had them build and construct for the use of this purpose. And each Friday before the Sabbath, the priests would bake 12 new loaves to replace the previous week's loaves because they were to always be before the Lord. And it was the Lord's way of showing that he was upholding the nation of Israel, that those 12 loaves that rested upon the table were the the 12 tribes who rested upon the grace and glory of the Lord for their salvation and sustenance. And then the third major implement that we see, the major item for the interior of the tabernacle is a lampstand. That is made of pure gold, along with the implements that are used to tend the lamps. This description of this lampstand is both simultaneously very, very specific and also very, very vague. There's no real indication of how large it is, but there's indications of the ways that the branches are supposed to go. And so we should recognize that the majority of the design is understood by Moses through what he saw. But there are two things that should be clear to us from the description that we see in the text. First, this lampstand apparently bears a striking resemblance to a tree. That's why we see mention of things like stems and branches and calyxes and almond flowers. All of those are indications of a very plant-like thing. And the almond flowers, I would say, indicate a tree. When we lived in California, we were surrounded almond trees and we would see the almond flowers and we would know they were coming before we saw them because we would start to sneeze but so when I read this description I, I think of those almond trees the second thing that we should recognize so first it's design evokes this imagery of a tree the second thing that we should recognize is that it is designed in such a way that it projects light in a particular direction in the case of This lamp, it is shining toward the table of the showbread. So on one side of the holy place is the table with the showbread. On the other side is the lampstand. And the lamps, which are constantly burning, are pointing toward, shining light upon the showbread. And the bread, which represents the 12 tribes of Israel, is receiving the light of the Lord from this lampstand. As I said, the table and the lampstand are in the holy place, but not the holy of holies. Only the Ark of the Covenant is there. And so the priest's job is going to be to tend to the table and the bread and the lamp and the lampstand. Their job is to keep those things constantly moving, as the Lord intended, as an act of worship that is perpetually taking place within the Lord's temple, or tabernacle. And I want you to notice something here, that in the worship of the Lord, what is he highlighting? Is he highlighting his own greatness? He's highlighting his own goodness. He's highlighting his love for his people. He is showing that he is a God who makes and keeps promises. He is going to sustain his people. He is going to shine the light of his love upon them. That is what he is highlighting there within the holy place. Where other pagan nations have all sorts of rituals and things like that that are the the markers of their worship. The worship of the people of God is a reminder of his love for them. But there is more to the tabernacle, which is what we find in the next two chapters. And that's our third point this morning, the tabernacle and the court. The tabernacle and the court. I'm going to read very briefly out of chapter 26 because I want you to, to recognize just very briefly what this is going to look like. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the exact same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. 50 loops you shall make on the one curtain, and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. I'm going to stop there. Notice, again, the level of detail that the Lord gives them. You are to make these curtains out of this fabric with these colors, and you are to interweave images of these cherubim into these curtains. You are to put loops, this number, in these places, and you are to take these clasps made of this material and clasp them together. He gives very specific instructions for what this is to look like. But I want you to notice that the Lord makes these things in such a way that they can be taken down and traveled with and then reassembled later. Because this is not a permanent structure. This is meant to represent that the Lord will travel with and go with the people of Israel as they go. They are to take down and pack up and carry the tabernacle with them everywhere that they go as they wander through the wilderness going toward the promised land and everywhere they go the lord is with them he goes before them as they travel and then when they stop they set up the tabernacle first then they camp around it and he dwells in their midst and because this represents a perfect and holy and righteous god he gives these detailed instructions he also he also gives them instructions for the outer boundary of the tabernacle which is essentially a curtain that is made to be suspended between posts that go around and he gives detailed instructions for how far apart the posts are and how big the panels are and they're to set all of this up and that makes the outer court he also gives instructions within these two chapters for an altar that is to be placed in the outer court Unlike the items within the tabernacle, this altar is overlaid with bronze instead of gold. The posts have bronze and silver parts on them. The further away you get from the presence of the Lord within the Holy of Holies, the less, the less fine the materials need to be. They're still fine materials, don't get me wrong, but they're not pure gold. And so this altar that's out in the court is to be used for the sacrifices that will be offered to the Lord, which is in part why it is located in the outer, part, outer court. Because the outer court is where the average Israelite can go, provided that they have obeyed the laws required of them in going. There are cleanliness laws and things of that nature that they have to obey, but that is where they can go. But they, can, they cannot go into the tabernacle unless they are a priest. It doesn't matter how good they are at following the law. It doesn't matter how well they clean themselves in in accordance with the laws of the Lord. They are not priests and thus they cannot go into the holy place. And then the priests cannot go into the holy of holies. Only the high priest can do that. One of the things that's really striking is that after the tabernacle is built, Moses is not allowed inside because he's not a priest. He doesn't get to do that because it's not his role. The Lord lays out specific roles for specific people, not because of anything that they have done, not because of anything in them, but simply because the Lord has decreed it to be so. And we see that in the destruction and function of the tabernacle. And what I want us to recognize is that all of these things are both echoes of the past and shadows of the future. The Ark of the Covenant is the third Ark that we find mentioned within the first two books of the Bible. The first one being Noah's Ark, which represented salvation from God's judgment. There was so much sin in the world that the Lord decreed that he was going to destroy all of it. And so, he took one particular family, instructed them to build an Ark, to fill it with animals and he would save them. The second time we see an ark mentioned is in the book of Exodus. The basket that Moses is placed into. If you remember the sermon that I preached on that, that word for Moses' basket is the exact same Hebrew word that is used for Noah's ark. And Moses' ark represented the Lord's salvation from the evil in the world. That he was going to rescue his people from slavery and oppression. And then here we find the Ark of the Covenant, which represents salvation from sin. The presence of the Lord here among his people. We see this echo of the past. Another echo of the past that we see is that the tabernacle itself represents a renewal of Eden. The lampstand, scholars would argue, is intended to be a reflection of the tree of life the tree that Adam and Eve in the garden could eat from that would allow them to live forever, that they were cut off from due to their sin. The Lord is giving a representation of that tree there within the very temple, showing that the life of his people is still found in him. Another really interesting thing about the tabernacle is that it is always, no matter where they place it, it is always set up for the people to enter it from the east, which echoes the entrance to Eden, Genesis three twenty-four. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when the people came into the temple, it was, in a manner of speaking, coming back into the Garden of Eden. But these are also shadows of the future, of the perfect, because it's not quite the same. Not everyone can come into the presence. Adam and Eve could, could both freely come into the presence. And as long as mankind was in the garden, every human could freely come into the presence of the Lord. Not every human can freely come into the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. The atonement that is found within the tabernacle is not permanent. It has to be done over and over and over again. And on top of that, in the tabernacle, in those sacrifices, there is nowhere to be found eternal life. The Lord promised his people that they would have life in the land, that they would live out the days, but there is no promise of eternal life. That is only found in Christ. And Christ is where we find the fulfillment of all of these things. In Hebrews chapter 8, we find this. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to enter the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." This is why, upon the death of Jesus Christ, the curtain, the elaborate curtain with the elaborate instructions that is given by the Lord that separates the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant lies from the rest of the temple and from the rest of the world. This is why, upon the death of Jesus, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Because in the death of Christ, there is now no barrier between God's people and God himself. Christ came, the fullness of God in human flesh, and died for us, for his people, that we can freely enter into the presence of God without fear, without condemnation, without judgment. And so rather than look to imperfect shadows we look to the substance in Christ. We don't have to go to a tabernacle and look at a tree that we can't eat from. We don't have to do that. We don't have to go and seek the word of the Lord by asking a priest to go into the, the high priest to go into the holy of holies. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. We have the fulfillment of these things. We find our hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is what the tabernacle pointed to all those years ago. The tabernacle and later the temple were always intended to focus our attention on what Jesus Christ has done. And so the calling upon all of us as we consider these elaborate instructions for the building and constructing of the tabernacle is this, to rest in his finished work. We don't have to construct a tabernacle to be in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is in us. We gather together freely as his body and worship him freely without having to sacrifice and do all of these things because Christ has done them for us. The Lord has saved us. And all of these shadows were but pointing, pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, rest in him. Place your hope in him. If you are with us today and you hear these things and you think about how beautiful and elaborate it must have been, know that Christ is better and that he is for you. And you too can know him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your glory that we know, that we see reflected in the tabernacle. We thank you, Father, for the fact that Christ has fulfilled these things and has brought these things to life and that in him, Lord, we are yours. Father, I pray for all of us that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, that if there are any here among us who don't know him, that Lord, you would save them today. Give them a new heart. Draw them to repent and believe the gospel. Help all of us, Lord, to recognize that Jesus is better than even these things. And we pray this in his name. Amen.